lost in the woods I thought I could find my way out Any day now I take a left, I take a right I take a step, I see the light Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, uh, I have my father, Craig Fisher, and we're going to be talking about the Hebrew, the Septuagint, Exodus uh, 3, and what's going on there with the name of God. Uh, thanks for coming. Well, one of my pet peeves is that whoever you talk to, whether it's a, a seminary professor or a pastor, they don't seem to know the name of God. That's one of the most important things that should be uh, theology 101 is is what is the name of God? But every time I ask them, they, they go off into a tangent and say something like God is the I am who I am, which also is disgusting to me because I am who I am is a platonic description of God, a God who is immutable, cold, and frozen, He's not a relational God, and that's not the way that God wants to portray himself at all. So if we go to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 3, and in Exodus, uh, this is before the Exodus happens in 3. Moses is on a mountain. He's tending uh, the flock of his, his uh, father-in-law, and he sees in the distance a fire that won't go out. He's interested in that so he leaves the sheep for a while he goes up into the mountain and there uh, he's introduced to God so if we look at Exodus uh, 3 God tells him right away Moses says I'll turn aside and look at this marvelous sight and then in verse 4 uh, Moses turns aside to look at it and then he has the famous uh, Hineni all the prophets uh, Isaiah they say, Hineni, here I am, is a common saying. And God even introduces himself to, to the people in Isaiah. And he says, Hineni, here I am. It's a call to recognize uh, that person and what, he, what he's saying. And he says, remove the sandals from your feet. You're standing on holy ground. And then he says, he introduces himself. He introduces himself like you would a stranger. The first thing you do is reach out your hand, you shake hands with a stranger, and you say, uh, my name is Craig Fisher, what's your name? You get, you exchange names. There's an introduction here, and that's what he's doing. He says, uh, I am, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God. So, God introduces himself right away. He tells Moses who he is. He tells Moses his name, and he gives Moses a mission that he's heard the outcry of the people in e of Israel in Egypt, and he's going to send him to Egypt to bring those people back. But Moses argues with him, and he, he wants a sign. You know, they get into the details. But what I'd like to review today is when Moses asks his name, when I come to the Israelites and they say, the God of your fathers has sent me to them, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Well, God just introduced himself, told him what his name was. And then he says, well, when I come to him and say, 
the God of the Israelites has sent me to you. He says, what is your name? So God has to remind Moses again of what he said. And this you shall say, uh, Elie sent me to you. This is not God's name. Elie is not God's name. Elie, Asher, Elie is not. It has nothing to do with God's name. Uh, God is just telling Moses, he says, Elie, Asher, Elie, I will be who I will be. Moses didn't like the name. He didn't like the name that he was introduced to God with. He doesn't think it's a fitting name to go to Pharaoh to talk to Pharaoh about because it's not a strong sounding name. It's not the God, the Lord of hosts, the God uh, you know, of battle. It's not something, a name that Pharaoh will be, uh, that, that Pharaoh will recognize and, and be afraid of. But he tells Moses something. He says, thus you shall speak to the Israelites, the Lord, and that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This shall be my name forever. This is my appellation for all eternity. How many people know the name of God? Ask your pastor, ask your Sunday school teacher, ask your common graduate of a Bible college. Nobody seems to know God's name. God tells it to them. Then he repeats, go to the assemble, the elders of Israel, and say to them, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me. This is my name forever. This is God's name. It's a relational name. He says, I am the God of this people. He names who the people are. He names the important figureheads in the people. He says, this is my name forever. It's a relational name. In classical theology, God isn't a relational God. God is the God of the negative attributes. Uh, one of the attributes is prosti is the attribute of relationship, but this is denied of God. Classical theology denies that it's possible for God to have a relationship, but God stresses here, my name, what I'll be called by is that I am a God of relationship. I am a God that has a relationship with these people, with Israel, and therefore my name, I'm going to put my name on this people, and I will call myself, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When you go to the Aaronic benediction in Numbers 6, in 624, you know, I give may God bless you and keep you. May the God shine his face upon you and be gracious unto you. May God place his face upon you and give you peace. And then at the end of that, which is always left off of the benediction, it says, I will bless uh, the people of Israel. And how does he do that? I will place my names upon the sons of Israel and I will bless them. So God's purpose in setting up his name letting everybody one know who his name is, is that God may um, elect these people, make an election of the people of Israel, and he's going to place his name 
upon the people of Israel. This is an important concept. This concept has been uh, left out. You're not going to find this in a sermon uh, by some pastor uh, in an evangelical church because uh, they don't like the Old Testament. Most classical theologians don't like the Old Testament. Uh, they don't go to the Old Testament. If you ask them simple questions about uh, who God is and what is his name, they're not going to know because they disregarded the Old Testament. So I'd like to go and see, see what is this fascination with this saying, I will be uh, who um, I am who I am. They think that this is the name of God, but this isn't the name of God. This is the name of a Platonic God, a God that's not in the Old Testament. And uh, we'll see what uh, Calvin has to say. This confusion with the name of God, this started a long time ago. It started uh, after the time of Alexander when the Septuagint was being wrote. You know, the Greek, the Jews, that uh, new Greek from Alexandria, who, who wrote the Septuagint, uh, they were ashamed of Moses. They thought Moses was too common and too ordinary. So they had to embellish Moses. They had to make Moses sound more like a Greek philosopher. And to do that, they went to Exodus 3.14. And here we have uh, the Septuagint. And, and God said, and in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, Ego Amy Ha Om. Ego Amy Ha Om. When uh, an exact Greek translation would be Ego Amy Ha Ego Amy. I am who I am. But in order to uh, platinize it, to make it sound more like their philosophers, they added a participle, the Ha On. On is a participle of uh, the verb is. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to. Uh, reflect the uh, the concept of being, the concept that Plato has when he uh, says that God is immutable, that he's without passion, that he's without relationship, and so he called it the one, or what they would do is they would nominatize uh, a participle, either Ta'an, which is in the neuter, or Ha'on, like this, which is in the masculine. And they would call him the being, uh, the one the one who is. Uh, that sounded more philosophic, and it uh, ingratiated them uh, with uh, the Greek philosophy of the air. It's not a good translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew actually says, I will be who I will be. And when, when you look at the verb tenses in the Hebrew, uh, the tense is in the imperfect. So if you go to an English translation of Exodus 3.14, a lot of times you'll see it translated in the present tense. Uh, I, I am who I am. And, and it's in the present tense because the imperfect has multiple functions in the Hebrew. It could be a modal in the Hebrew. Um, I would be who I would be. It, it could be a, a volative uh, as a, a volitional thing saying, 
um, I, I will do as I, I will do, I will be as I will do, a volitional attitude that, and sometimes it's translated nomic, and when you do put it in a nomic sense, and then usually in the English we translate that into the present tense, I am who I am. <clears throat> in the Hebrew, however, it's in the imperfect, and you have to figure out from the context, is it in the nomic sense, is it in the volitional sense, is it in the modal sense? But if you just went there on a Hebrew 101 reading and, and looked at it, it would be translated into the future. I will be who I will be. This seems to be the best translation to me because Moses isn't explaining uh, to God in this sentence. He's not explaining what his name is. This doesn't happen have to do with his name is because you look at Exodus three fifteen and God explains to Moses the name his name. He say to this people of Israel and then he he gives his name. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is I had to be remembered throughout all generations. He's not supposed to remember throughout all generations as I am who I am. And if we want to look at this phrase and see something that's translated uh, very similar in the Greek, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He uses the, the exact Greek words. Oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul is talking to the people in Corinth. He's explaining that he's apostle. He's explaining... Um, why he is worthy to be called an apostle, because for one thing, he saw Jesus Christ. And, that, and then he was given a commission by Christ. So he's worthy to be called an apostle. But before that, he was a scoundrel. He persecuted the church of God. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has to stop him on the road to Emmaus. Paul is acutely aware uh, that he's the least of all the apostles and that he has persecuted the church of God. And in his apology in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By the grace of God, Amy Ha Amy, which is I am who I am. This would be, if you go to the English and you're translating in Exodus 3.14 and you're translated into Greek, that's the way you would translate it, Amy, ha, Amy. But Paul isn't saying that he's deity. This is not a deity claim. This is just Paul telling people that, yeah, I used to be a scoundrel. Now I'm not. But there's nothing I could do about it. There's nothing uh, that I could change. I would change it if I could. But this is what you get. Here I am. I am who I am. That is Paul using the same words that God is in in Greek as God is using in the Hebrew in Exodus 3.14 when he says, I will be who I will be. It's, it's just an idiom. It's, it's something to tell people, uh, you know, don't be concerned uh, with uh, trying to get a mightier name or being called a the Lord of Armies or the Lord of Hosts or, you know, you, you, there's a place for that later. You can change the name. 
but but my name forever in Exodus 3.14, I will be who I will be. That shows that God is a God of relationship in a relationship to Israel. The people that insist upon saying, I am who I am in Exodus 3.14. Paul's, by the way, Paul's not making a claim to Greek philosophy here either. This is not a metaphysical claim of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And so when we go to Exodus 3, 14 and 15, it's not a metaphysical claim either. It's just God saying, I will be who I will be. And, and you're just going to have to take it, Israel. This is my name. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if we look at Calvin's interpretation of this verse, it, it's very interesting because uh, he says um, the, I, the I am is in the future tense. I will be who I will be. I, I wish people would have listened to Calvin and translated it properly. Uh, when the King James translators were translating this, uh, they should have translated, I will be what I will be. But, of course, they were philosophically inclined, and they thought it was better for their philosophy if they put it in a non-sense in the present tense. I am who I am. Yeah, he says it designates the perpetual duration of time. Time has nothing to do with this. I don't know how you got time. and uh, But I think I know how Kelvin got time. When you go down the page a little bit, it says, Plato constantly affirms that God is peculiarly the ta'an, the being. The being? What? God doesn't say that. Yes, the Septuagint mistranslated it as the ha'on, which is the masculine form, and the being, the ta'an here, is in the neuter. I guess that makes it more platonic form. But this isn't a claim of Platonism. This thing that happened to Moses happened in the 13th, 14th century B.C. That's a long time before Plato came around in the 5th and 6th century B.C. This is a this is almost a thousand years, 800 years before Plato. Moses had nothing, nothing of the kind in mind. Yet Calvin pulls this together with Platonism and he says, this affirms that God is the ta'an, the being, the being of God that absorbs all imaginal essences. This is not in the Bible. This is purely Greek philosophy. Therefore, in order to rightly apprehend the one God, we must know first that all things in heaven derive with his essence or his substance from the one. This is not a claim to substance. When you go to the Hebrew, he just says, I will be who I will be. It's not a substance claim. It's not a metaphysical claim. But John Calvin reveals who he is. This is who he is. He is thinking platonically. He is bringing these platonic conceptions into the Old Testament. Augustine had a problem with that. He thought the Old Testament was written too simply, that it wasn't... Uh, written up to his standards. And so Augustine tried to spiritualize the Old Testament because it was too simple for him. But John Calvin and Augustine 
They want to make metaphysics out of simple statements in the Old Testament. They want to introduce Platonism into Exodus 3, but it has no part in Exodus chapter 3. All right, uh, I'd just like to turn quickly to my article on the name of God. And it's interesting that uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find uh, actually Exodus uh, 3.14, and it retains the more ancient uh, letters of the name of God. So although the Septuagint predates most of our Hebrew texts, we do have an older Hebrew text, which retains the form of God's name even in older older lettering because they considered it holy so we know that it's original this the Septuagint translation is not the original and furthermore there's various competing forms of the Greek Old Testament <clears throat> during the time of origin and the Jews very much abandoned using the Septuagint because of the Hellenistic influences in the Septuagint it was too Hellenized for them, and so then they went with other translations, other translations which were, in fact, better. And so the versions Aquila and Theodotion have Aya, Asher, Aya, and the Aya of 314b rendered into Greek as Isami, Ho, Isami, and Isami, respectively, which in turn translate to I will be who I will be, and I will be. So there were Greek versions of the Old Testament at that time with the correct renderings into Greek. It's just the Septuagint, which was translated in Alexandria, which was a hot spot for Platonism, Gnosticism, very Hellenized. It was written under the Ptolemy dynasty. Ptolemy was a general of Alexander. This was a city founded by Alexander, Alexandria. This was a Hellenized city. And it was written for Hellenizing reasons. It was written to make uh, the Jewish religion more metropolitan. And you see some anti-anthropomorphic attempts within, within the Septuagint. They tend to unanthropomorphize uh, descriptions of God throughout. And so it is a work of propaganda. There, we do have indication that it's not original translation, that there's competing and better translations that were circulating at that time. All right, so here's Rabbi Sachs on the whole issue, and he points this out in his book, The Great Partnership, Science, Religion, and the Search for Meaning, in which he points out the differences between the philosophical uh, Christianity and uh, traditional Judaism. And he talks about these differences in, in that all these categories being ascribed to God are just not present in the Hebrew Bible. And he says this, fifth and most profound differences lie in the way the two traditions understand the key phrase in which God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. Who are you? Asks Moses. God replies cryptically, Ehe, Asher, Ehe. This was translated into Greek as Ego, Eme, Ho, On, and into Latin as Ego, Sum, Ki, Sum, meaning I am who I am or I am he who is. The early and medieval Christian theologians all understood the phrase to be speaking about ontology. Philo did as well. So if you look at the writings of Philo and his commentary on this, Philo was a Jew in Alexandria at the time of Jesus, and he understood this as a statement of pure being. And he, he really was. He really was a middle or Neoplatonist, and he held a lot of the Neoplatonist tenets that we are familiar with today. And so he as well took it like this in the time of Jesus in Alexandria. But 
Rabbi Sachs goes on, the early medieval Christian theologians still all understood the phrase to be speaking about ontology, the metaphysical nature of God's existence. It meant that he was being itself, timeless, immutable, incorporeal, understood as a subsisting act of all existing. Augustine defines God as that which does not change and cannot change. Aquinas, continuing the same tradition, reads the Exodus formula as saying that God is true being, and that is being that is eternal, immutable, simple, self-sufficient, and the cause and principle of every creature. We just read Calvin saying the same. But this is the God of Aristotle and the philosophers, not the God of Abraham and the prophets. Ehe, Asher, Ehe means none of these things. It means I will be where, what, where, how I will be. The essential element of the phrase is the dimension omitted by all early Christian translations, namely the future tense. God is defining himself as the Lord of history, who is about to intervene in unprecedented ways to liberate a group of slaves from the mightiest empire of the ancient world and lead them on a journey towards liberation. There's a relational element that's uh, embedded in this phrase that, that Christians miss, uh, ancient Hellenized Jews missed, and uh, philosophers in general, that Rabbi Sachs is picking up here for us. Rabbi Sachs, this is great. This is a great translation. It's a great recognition of the fact that Greek philosophy filtered in, was influenced in the translation. But he gives Christians too much credit here. You know, he, he talks as if it was only Christians that were doing that. But we know the translators of the Septuagint from the Hebrew into the Greek at the time were heavily influenced by Platonist ideas. All these people were Jews. And yes, Christians mucked it up. They did a great disservice to the text. They continue to do a great disservice to the text. But it started out as a reaction of the Jews in the 3rd and 4th century, perhaps 2nd century B.C. in the translation of the Septuagint, uh, you're going to find this Greek philosophy creeping in, not like he says in the 11th century AD, but this Greek philosophy was seeping into Judaism in the 2nd and 3rd century BCs. So, yes, yes, we, we, we as Christians, we made a mistake, <laughs> but it started with the Jews. We get everything from the Jews. We get our Old Testament, we get most of the New Testament, we get our commentaries from the Jews. Uh, when we do theology, uh, we're just doing footnotes on what the Jews have written and what the Jews are talking about. So I think we should respect the Jews, but they also uh, can share some of the responsibility uh, for this creeping in of philosophy. Granted, Dov Weiss points out that uh, Philo is basically un- unpersoned in Judaism. No one relies on him. No one cares about the things he said. Uh, basically, Philo is really adopted by the Christian tradition. Eusebius tries to claim that he's like a proto-Christian or an actual Christian, and the Jews basically ignore all his works. But you do see in the Midrash and a commentary on on the Bible that the, that the Jews, in their interactions with Gentiles started addressing philosophical questions. I think I got it uh, tied down to the 160 AD in which one Jew was uh, interacting with a Gentile and the Gentiles asking him if God knows all the future and uh, the 
Jew says yes, that, that God does. So by, by the 160s, you had Jews uh, affirming affirming uh, classical attributes that, that the Gentiles would would uh, would ascribe to their deities. All right, so uh, let, let's just uh, summarize what we talked about. Uh, God has a name. He gave his name to the people of Israel. The name was relational. It was involved with with who Israel was, God's destiny with the people of Israel, God's ability to be who he wants to be. And what did what did Christians do? They tried to turn it into metaphysics. And one of the reasons that Christians do this is because they're desperate for proofs, proof texts about metaphysics. They just don't exist in the Bible. And so the, the, they have to treat the Bible much like Philo of Alexandria did, in which they have to just look for little things and then spiritualize those texts, even though there's nothing in the context that suggests those readings. Christians have to spiritualize proof texts that have no context to describe what they want to prove, just because those those types of proof texts do not exist in the Bible. The Bible is not a system of metaphysics. It's a documented history of God's interactions with the world, which is very non-metaphysical. It's, it's a non-philosophical. It's very historical. It, it describes God as a person rather than God as a being, uh, something that uh, has certain immutable properties that must act and react in certain fashions. God's just not like that in the Bible. He's personal, relational. He has a multitude of, of uh, responses available to him in any situation. He can make decisions. He could try things out, see which things work and which things don't. And he can respond to changing circumstances. That's who God is in the Bible. And so the Jews very early on, because they were Hellenized, they grew up in Hellenized cities, cities that were established by by people like Alexander the Great, who was a direct pupil of Aristotle, who was Plato's pupil. And we had these uh, Hellenized generals, the Hellenized city filled with Hellenized uh, Greek soldiers. It's talking about Hellenized philosophy. And where, what happened in Alexandria, that's where all the Gnostics sprung up. That's the hotbed of Gnostic and Platonistic activity. And so you have the Septuagint translated there. You have the Septuagint uh, abandoned fairly quickly by the Jewish people for being not as accurate as other translations, competing translations. And Origen talks about this. And Origen, Origen was the great uh, textual scholar who knew all the different texts. And he pointed out these problems that the Jews did abandon the Septuagint in favor of more accurate translations. And so uh, I, I usually take anything from Alexandria with a grain of salt. They were very Hellenized. They were trying to fit into a metropolitan society. And you, you see Judaism, traditional Judaism, fall out of favor fairly early with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the Gentiles really take over the church. And so you replace people like uh, John. You replace people like James. And you replace them with people like Justin Martyr, who came from a Platonist tradition. You replace him with people like Origen, who was taught by Ammonius Sactus, who was also the teacher of Plotinus. This is Neoplatonist tradition, seeping into the church through people who had long histories in Platonism. This is before Augustine, and Augustine himself was a Platonist, and he said he could not believe the Bible, except for if he read it in light of Platonism. So this Platonism, it was early, it happened fast, it happened before the turn of the century, and we see the beginnings of it uh, in even the Septuagint translation. There's better translations out there, but we just need to be aware 
that uh, when these influences started arising in Christianity, how they affected Christianity, and what kind of uh, holdovers we have today, such as this pure being philosophy. Western Christianity, and in a lot of ways Eastern Christianity, they like to grab statements or parts of Scripture out of context, out of the Bible. They like to make that into a metaphysical statement. The reason they do that is because they're basically platonic philosophers who created God by attributing a list of attributes to God, or non-attributes, what they call negative theology, but saying that God is like this, is immutable, omniscient, omni. So they put a lot of adjectives at the end of God, and they create God from words. It's called reification, it's creating God from words. And they like to go into the Old and the New Testaments, pull out chunks of narrative, and then make it into metaphysical statements that they like to attribute to God as some kind of attribute. In Exodus 3.14, God is saying, I will be who I will be. He is just explaining to Moses that this is his name, the name that he introduced Moses to. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, this is my name, but that's tough. If you don't like my name, I will be who I will be. And all these attempts at... Uh, uh, deity statements in the New Testament when Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, the life. Jesus is not, it's not deity statements. He's claiming to be the truth, the way Jesus is deity, he is God. But uh, you can't pull a statement out of the Old Testament and make it a metaphysical statement and then make it into something more than it is. You have to read the Bible in context. Look at the verses in context. What is it telling you? Is God trying to speak metaphysically, which he almost never does? He speaks in terms of relationships. God is the God of the Old Testament. He's a God of revelation. He's not a God that you make up from philosophical terms and philosophical syllogisms where God is supposed to be like this because it's an attempt to control God. It's, it's an attempt to make God less than he is. God is a personal being. He is not the God of metaphysics. He says, I am the God of relationship. And we have to accept God at face value for what he says and not trying to make the Bible a bunch of uh, cutout statements about metaphysics. All right, that's about all the time we have for today's episode. you got questions and comments, put them down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.